<clears throat> we're continuing our series, and it feels uh, kind of appropriate that we go back to basics, this idea of rebooting our faith. After 20 years of ministry, after following Jesus for however long, after sort of pursuing him in different ways, sometimes it's good to go back to the beginning and kind of readdress some of those foundational ideas that kind of hold everything together because I've noticed, and this is something that I see in myself, year after year after year, uh, I find myself experiencing the temptation to uh, be too clever. Maybe try to outsmart my own faith. Right? I'm looking for little efficiencies. I'm looking for ways to sort of make it better, more exciting, more interesting. Right? And sometimes it's best to just go back to what is tried and true. Right? Sometimes the old ways are the best ways. Sometimes the original ways are the right ways, and we shouldn't really mess with them too much, right? We shouldn't get too uh, far down the road of progress and development when we worship a God who is timeless in a tradition that is ancient. Uh, There's a need to kind of go back to that. So we go back because we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's what we're doing during this series. And today... Uh, we're addressing the subject of witness. And witness is, uh, is just another way of saying, how do I share my faith publicly with other people? Right? And we'll get into the messiness and the challenge of that. It sounds so simple on the face of it, but it's actually quite difficult. Right? So I've got this passage, this ancient word that we're going to read from Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 57. We're reading a couple of excerpts. And I just want us to hear in the passage this larger theme of what it means to be a witness and how that might look and how it finds expression. Don't get too stuck in the weeds. I think sometimes uh, as Western-minded Christians, we look at words and, and we pick things out and we want to pick it apart, pick it apart, pick it apart. When we're reading uh, in the Old Testament in particular, I just want you to hear a theme and hear an arc kind of take place uh, in this story and maybe listen more with your heart, maybe listen with your soul more than with your mind or your intellect, uh, especially in this initial hearing. Okay, Isaiah 55, 1-7, we'll just read this. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty... Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. 
Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people for this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, forever whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet He kept on his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace. Peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So we are in the business of transformation. Transforming lives through discipleship to Jesus is a big part of the work of what we might describe as converting people. right? And that's a nasty Nasty word, right? That feels like a four-letter word in our culture today. Conversion or converting people. And you hear that word and you go, wait, 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 wait. We are modern progressive people. You can't just throw conversion and converting around uh, so flippantly. It feels intolerant of us to say that we are in the business of converting other people because it assumes that our ways are somehow better than other people's ways, and you just can't do that. You just can't walk around saying those things or posting those things without somebody wanting to punch you in the face. And so that's what a lot of people believe today. We come across this in all walks of life, that spirituality is fine. To be a spiritual person is fine. Helping other people discover their own spirituality, which might be very different from your own, is fine. But proselytizing, which is like a $10 word for trying to convert people, right, to some kind of religion is not fine. Right? It's the opposite of okay, and other people are going to pile on and, and get in your business if you try to do that. And the reality is... If you believe that that's okay, then you have already been converted to. You've been converted to what we might argue as sort of post-enlightenment, right? Self-actualized spirituality. You've already been converted away from something that's been the foundation and the bedrock of Christianity for a while, right? If we pause 
take religion out of the picture, take spirituality out of the picture, take these sort of buzzwords out of the conversation, and what we realize is that we are being bombarded every day, whether it's in public, in conversation, in the workplace, in school, in the books that we read, on social media, wherever it is that you are observing the world around you, outside of a cave, you are being converted to something. Are you with me? You are being evangelized into some other kind of way of thinking, whether you are aware of it or not. You are being sold something Every second of every day, whether you are realizing it or not, and they're getting sneakier and sneakier about the way that they're trying to sell you whatever it is that they're selling. You see it? So if we pause for a moment, we recognize we are being sold and preached to and given tons of narratives every day. If you start to look out into the world this week, and you start to listen and pay attention to other people's motivations and their agendas around you, whether those agendas are are wrong or right or, or malicious or magnanimous, whatever it is, right, you're going to realize very quickly that everybody is selling something, right? And particularly here in the South Bay, particularly here in Los Angeles, everybody's got something to sell and everybody look, appears to be a customer, right? So here we are as followers of Jesus, and I would submit to you, if we're serious and at least earnest about our following of Jesus, we cannot separate ourselves from the larger purpose and calling to convert other people to follow Jesus with us. We cannot separate following Jesus, doing all the things that we've been talking about, praying and fellowshipping and reading the word and serving and doing all of this beautiful, beautiful work, we cannot separate it from this larger purpose of drawing other people into the faith, right? As modern and as progressive as we desire to be and as off-putting as that notion seems, if we read the scriptures clearly, we can't get away from this larger picture, right? So here we are, rooted in the fundamental, fundamentals of the faith. Our passage today tells us something about this mission and about this purpose of witness. But let's pray. Let's pray as a way of prying open our hearts and our minds before the Lord together to see what he has to tell us. Heavenly Father God, I just, I give you thanks, Lord. My heart is filled with gratitude. And I pray that out of that gratitude, Lord, you would speak. That you would cause us to welcome what it is that you have for us. That you would allow your word to speak loud and clear. That your spirit would come and speak loud and clear. Not just to our minds, but to our hearts, to our souls, to the deepest parts of us, God, where... You do business with us. And I pray that we would not get in the way of that process, however challenging or difficult it might be. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, hey, three things we're going to try to cover today. One, 
that God calls his people onto a mission. We've got this larger mission taking place, that there's this message bound up inside of the mission. Uh, It's not exactly um, what we imagine it to be. There might be a deeper, larger message there. And then there's this motivation and, uh, and thankfully a power that goes along with that call to mission with a message. There's a motivation and there's a power, okay? So first things first, uh, we talk about this mission, this mission that's taking place. And if we look at the first uh, few verses, verses 3 to 5 in Isaiah 55, listen to what it says again. It says, give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. Now I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Verse 4, see, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples, and surely you will summon nations you know not, and the nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Right? I think this is remarkable. If we just pause for a second, we listen to this sort of poetry of this verse and we can miss some of the sort of how spectacular it can be. God is saying, I will revive your inner life, right? Your soul will live. I will revive it and I'll call you into an eternal promise. That's a covenant, right? I'm forming this promise with you, this relational promise to be with you to the very end, just as I did with King David, who was this hugely prominent person in the Old Testament narrative. And I want you to be a witness to this and to ultimately summon other nations to this promise that I'm making with you. Right? All in these few verses. I'm going to revive your soul. I'm going to wake you up to something. I'm going to form a permanent everlasting bond with you, and then I'm going to send you into a mission that's not just limited to you and to where you are, but that involves people everywhere. And if that sounds just crazy and bodacious, it is, but just stop for a second and realize we are already connected to what God is doing in the world through the work of Mozambique. Many of whom, uh, many of you in this room have been there and have seen firsthand the work of God in Mozambique and brought that story back here. So we are already, you and me, just regular folks living in the South Bay, just getting by, fighting traffic on the 405, have already tasted of God doing an everlasting work on the other side of the world, in another language, in another culture, God is calling people to himself through us, which feels totally crazy, and is rescuing not just individuals, but whole generations of people are being rescued right at this very moment. Not theoretically, but actually, all right? We need to sit in that for just a second because that's pretty exciting, right? That our local connections become international, global, cross-cultural connections because of God, right? 
looks totally different than what we might imagine it here, right? Because there are people gathered today in another part of the world and they're sitting under tents made of sticks and mud uh, in the dirt, listening to the word of God in their own language. Crazy. So there are two kinds of witnesses that are taking place inside of this when God says, I will make you a witness to all peoples. Two kinds of witnesses. There's legal testimony, right? Those of you who are lawyers or lawyer adjacent, God bless you, right? There's this legal side, sort of like I'm giving testimony. And then there's a kind of notary testimony, which is I'm going to go to somebody and I'm going to tell them what I saw. And that might be more in line with how we imagine the Christian witness. I'm going to go to other people and I'm going to tell them what I have seen of God. And they're either going to accept or believe or ignore me or we're going to have an ongoing conversation. But this is the part of Christian witness that I hope we can latch on to just a little bit that we will understand that our obligation as followers of Jesus, if our soul gets woken up and we form this covenant bond with God himself, just as he did with King David, you and I are responsible now for sharing our experience. Because we experience transformation. And we do this all the time, by the way. We do it all the time, whether we know it or not. Shared experience is such a part of the fabric of human existence. We do it all the time. You should actually check yourself on this. This is really fascinating, right? If something good happens, if something good happens in your life or something transformative takes place, what do we do? What do we do with that, right? Do we take it and do we stuff it into the recesses of our, our souls and just hide it from everybody else? No way, right? We go straight for the phone. We take selfies, right? Whatever it is, right? People are sharing their transformative human experience with as many followers as they can. Isn't that an interesting term for our social media followers, right? we turn that word into like disciples right then we become cult leaders weird things start to happen when we insert spiritual language are you with me but it's happening all the time right something happens i remember when the 49ers uh were playing in the super bowl and they lost so close multiple times right and i'm watching this thing happening on my television, and I'm hunched down behind my couch because I can barely get myself to watch what's happening because you just feel it slipping away, right? You just feel it. Something, something terrible is about to happen, and so I'm hiding behind my couch as if this is somehow going to influence the outcome of the game because I just can't expose my whole jersey and my whole person to the TV. So I'm hiding behind the couch, and there's this incredible picture of it. I've got my hat on backwards, and I'm peering over my couch into the television, and something terrible happens in this instant, right? So not all uh, shared transformational experiences are positive. Sometimes we have to take one for the team. And I remember in that moment, this thing was happening, and as it all sort of crumbled, right, before my very eyes, I had to have a shared experience 
And I was sitting there watching the game with this uh, friend of mine, Bobby, who was behind me. And he was a Steelers fan, so he didn't have a dog in this fight. He was just there to support me. And I remember watching it, and I, I remember throwing my hands up, and I may have said some choice things. And he just grabs me from behind, because this is the shared experience that all human beings are required to have in transformational moments. And he just grabbed me around the back and he squeezed me and he says, it's going to be all right, Doug. I know exactly how you feel. Because <laughs> the Steelers hadn't been good in a long time. <laughs> Amen. And he just grabbed me and I'm telling you, when we have transformational experiences, they have to be shared. But something inside of us is constipated about our faith when it comes to shared experience. We are so afraid. I would argue we are kind of suppressed. Right? There is a kind of suppression that takes place because we're not sure what sharing the word of God and human experience inside of following Jesus, making that public and sharing it even with our closest friends feels so risky. But friends, I would argue it's part of the mission. And mission is scary. And mission requires risk. And it requires a willingness to step outside of that, that sort of quintessential comfort zone that we live inside of. And this is not just something that happens in the Old Testament. This happens all throughout the scriptures and it's happening to us. When we are called, we get sent. When God calls you in, right, there's this natural and normal and necessary response, right? We get brought in and it's almost like God is pulling the bow back. And he's bringing us close. And he's just saying, have a nice trip. And he sends us, man. Right? All the way through, Moses, Jonah, Jesus himself, the disciples get sent. And they're all incredibly uncomfortable with what's happening to them. And I say that as a way of just comforting you in an odd way. It's okay to get sent into new places in doing new things. It's part of transformation. It's part of our transformation. So maybe we can learn to get comfortable with it just a little bit. So it's not just about this mission that we're on. We make this point, conversion to a comprehensive view of the world and reality, and then being sent out to convert others, I know, dirty word, to that view is unavoidable in the Christian life. Unavoidable. And if you're avoiding it, you might be missing out. You might be missing out on what God wants to do in your, in your life and through your life. Taking some risk. So there's mission. We're also given this message. And the message is not like just the gospel, right? Cookie cutter, right? Four spiritual laws or whatever. I just aged myself. Anyway, it's not just that message. That's crucial, but it's not just that. It's more about how the message 
is taking place that I think is, is super critical and that we sometimes miss, right? Look at what it says in verse 3. Give ear, right? Pay attention. Come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. And then in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. So there is a kind of listening, a kind of a giving of the ear that allows us to experience change and transformation on the deepest, most fundamental level of human existence. We're not talking about the changing of the mind. We're not talking about the changing of emotion even. We're talking about the bringing back to life of the soul. And this might be one of the great gaps that we have as human beings. I know this is something that I struggle with, right? As a Western-educated immigrant of emotionally constipated parents, right? Is having a language of the soul what it is? Where is it? How do I access it? How do I learn to speak its language? How do I get in touch with this deepest, most fundamental part of my human existence if I don't even know what it is or where it is or how to talk to it or how to get it to to speak to me? I honestly get so bound up in my thinking. I get so bound up in my intellect. I can't even give voice properly to my emotions and to how I'm really feeling at any given moment. There are muscles that I have to cultivate and develop in order to understand what my soul is doing when it is dying and when it is coming alive. There's this message that if we believe it, changes everything, causes us to forsake or to give up our old ways, to forsake our old thoughts. This is conversion language, by the way. It's happening right here in our midst, right? Masked again, hidden in plain sight, happens all the time, right? I think if we want to change our behavior, if we want to change our thinking, we have to learn how to access the soul. What is happening inside of your soul? And there's this whole set of skills that we have to cultivate as humans, and I think we've lost it. The art of conversation, the art of listening, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about the art of being connected to another person, the idea of giving ear and leaning in. I think we miss some of this. It doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen efficiently in our lives. This is slow stuff. And I think one of the challenges is that we're desperately distracted people because we're so used to things happening all the time. We're used to getting thousands of messages when really we just need one, right? One a day. It's a whole other sermon, but think about that for a second. Would I give up the thousand useless emails that I get each day? 
for one significant encounter with another human being. Think about that for a second. Would I give up the thousands of superficial passing moments that go straight to a folder or away? Would I change, exchange all of that, my whole day, for one significant human interaction? And having experienced that, I'll tell you this. The answer is yes. Do it. Do it. Every day you can. It's that important. Whole another sermon. Right? Listen to what it says here. Listen to what this says. Verses 2 and 3, Isaiah 55. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. He says it again. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Are you hearing this? What is it that we're spending our money on that we're just throwing away, that we're chasing? If the soul is the essence of your life, not just the parts of your life, man, then we cannot be changed until we learn how to satisfy the soul. So what does the heart seek? It sounds right here. Bread. Bread and water. We're, we're searching after bread and water. And, and it's not satisfying. It's just temporary. It's just a quick fix. And we ask the question, what is it that we are pursuing in our lives every day that's just bread and water? Right? It might keep us alive, but that's not living, friends. Right? It can keep us alive, but it's not living. Bread and water. This is just sustenance. It's not really going to satisfy the same way as your favorite thing, your favorite dish, right? We do this all the time. Relationship, job. We're pursuing forgiveness. We're pursuing freedom. We're pursuing physical healing, emotional healing, psychological healing. And God reminds us over and over again, if I'm not the bread and water that you're after, It's not going to meet your soul level need. And this, again, this is not easy, right? We can say it and we talk about it all the time. We talk about the soul pretty, pretty, you know, kind of a lot. But it's not easy. Talking and living and breathing and interacting on a soul level is exhausting work. It's exhausting work and challenging for us. I would argue this. The thing that's happening on your soul level is the scariest thing that you don't want to look at. That's where God wants to heal you and shape you and mold you, right? I'll tell you a picture of it. So I'm a chronic uh, overhelper, okay? You guys laugh because some of you have been beneficiaries of this chronic overhelperness. Right? And my family laughs and then they go home and they cry about it because where's dad? He's probably doing something for somebody else because I have this overwhelming need to be helpful and, and I had to work this out. I had to work this out um, because I had this, I had this moment and I'll tell you, this was soul transformation. It was a crushing, crushing moment. But 
Uh, if you're lucky to have soul guides in your life, people that are willing to speak to you on the level of your soul, those are the people you need to go have your one daily interaction with, by the way. And if you don't have one of those people, you should pray for someone to come into your life who's willing to speak to you on the level of your soul and who cares very little about all of the ancillary things that you talk to everybody else about. Go find that person. That's it, brother. Go find that human. So here I'm in this conversation, and I'm meeting with a patient. I'm over at uh, um, a hospital where they take care of people uh, who are, who are uh, badly injured and are recovering a very long process. And I'm in the hospital with this young man. He's about my age, and this is partly what makes it challenging. He's about my age, and he's a dad, and he's married, and, and he's in, and he's, uh, he's now a tetraplegic. He cannot move his arms or his legs, and he's bedbound. And our conversation is all about how unhappy he is. And he's just sort of slowly, you know, descending into um, depression and hysteria. It's a very sad space. And if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody who's just losing it, right, right before you and cannot move and is really trapped uh, in a very sad situation that is unfixable, is an uncomfortable place for a chronic overhelper fixer. Right? Very challenging. But I'm there, right? And we're hanging out. And this, is a, this guy is a Christian, and so we're, we're connecting over our faith, and we're having this conversation. And somewhere in the conversation, he's questioning why he exists and, and how he can contribute and, and what kind of a human being can I be if I can't do anything. I'm just a giant ball of need. And he's wishing to just disappear. He just wants to die. But he can't even accomplish that for himself, right? So he's truly trapped. And I said something to him uh, that I instantly regretted. And it's probably something that you might have heard already. I remember sitting there and I told him, and right after I said it, I regretted it. But I sat there and I said, you are more than what you can do. And I wrote this whole report to my supervisors because this is what we do. We, we transcribe these conversations and we bring them back to our instructors and we get nitpicky over them and talk about our process. Right? So I instantly regretted my chronic overhelperness because I wanted to fix his despair. Did you hear it? I wanted to fix his despair. I wanted to fix his unfixable clinically depressed, tetraplegic despair in the 15-minute conversation that I was having with him. And the reason that I shared that with him was because I was uncomfortable with his discomfort. And my supervisor, who is all about the soul and minces no words, in a Zoom conversation... That's how powerful this was. In a Zoom conversation, I'm talking to her about me wanting to sort of comfort myself by saying something that I think this person needs to hear that does them no earthly good. And she turns it right back on me and she looks me dead in the eyes on a Zoom screen with 12 other people and she says, Doug, do you believe that? That you are more than what you do? And I couldn't tell you where my soul was, but I'm pretty sure I felt it. 
deep in my gut, took the air right out of me. And I stopped, and I had tears in my eyes, and I said, I, I don't think I do. And she says, maybe you need to think about that. Smashed me. I was done after that moment. But what it did was so powerful. And I've never forgotten that moment. It's a couple years ago now. And what it has freed me to do is walk into the room with people who experience unspeakable tragedy. And that I am in, I'm incapable of fixing or helping in any possible way. It has freed me to sit in the room and know that I don't need to do anything. That I can just be there. And that my being there is not only good enough, but it's the best thing that I could possibly do. And that I don't need to help everybody because there are too many people to help. Even Jesus didn't get to everybody. And there's something inside of us that has to learn how to be okay with that human limitation. That was my story. But it was a soul kind of transformation. Did you see it? It was a soul kind of healing that bypasses the intellect that bypasses emotion. It bypasses everything and it hits you right in the center of your being. And you don't even know where it is, but you know when it hits you. Ugh! You got me. And the soul begins to change. And the heart begins to change. And the mind begins to change. And the life begins to change. So we've got this incredible mission, friends. This audacious, I would argue, controversial, off-putting, unpopular mission. But what I want to convey to you is that the message is not at all controversial. It is not at all upsetting. It is life-giving, life-altering, life-transforming things that happen in the center of the soul. And if you have the opportunity to be a recipient of that or to share that, you should. Because who is talking about the soul today, friends? Who is talking about your soul? Except the Christian. Except the follower of Jesus in search of the soul. And what's happening in the soul. Crucial conversation that we must have in order to experience the transformation that we have to have. Man. I'm going to skip some stuff, Pauline, because I want to wrap this up. So what do we do with this? It's not easy. I'm not proposing some simple you know, set of tasks that if you employ them, you'll somehow magically, you know, be converting all these people around you. You actually have to get in touch with your own soul and then learn how to have soul conversations with other people. 
And I will argue that it is the most desperately needed thing that we have as human beings in Western society today is to be able to have a soul-level conversation with people who do not believe the same things that we do necessarily, but that need their souls uh, cared for in fundamental ways. Important. So God provides mission, message, motivation, and we'll just kind of wrap our brains around this and give it a little hug. So God provides us. Listen again in verse 3. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love and promise to David. This is our context and motivation for why we do mission and why we are carriers of a message because you and I are in a permanent, unchangeable, unbreakable relationship with Jesus Christ on the deepest level of human experience. And he's given to us for free, right? If you go back to verses one and two, sorry, Pauline, we're gonna, if we back up to this, it says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you don't have any money, I want you to come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You see it? Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? There's this economy of things happening, right? There's what I work for, what I labor for, what I strive for, and there's what's free. You see it? And we look at this and we go, man, that sounds too easy. That's probably one of the knocks on Christianity. Is Christianity is like cheap because it's free? Ah, it's too easy. Anybody who's tried to follow Jesus for more than 30 seconds realizes this is the hardest thing we can do as human beings is to receive what we cannot earn. It's the hardest thing, isn't it? It's easy to work for stuff. Man, we love that. Shoulder to the grindstone. We love that stuff. I want to work hard and earn what I've got. And even if it's just a little bit, I can be satisfied because that's part of our need to do. And I'm with you on that. I am. I'm with you, friends. The hardest thing to do is to receive what's free. To receive a gift that somebody else has paid for. There's nothing that just, oh, it's so hard. When somebody wants to buy my meal or, or pay my way or give me something for free, man, I'm just like, oh, no, the Asian in me says no three times. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know if other cultures do that, but it's three times, minimum. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I can't, I can't, I can't. And then they force it on you. And you begrudgingly receive it and you walk away and you start plotting how to pay them back. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I'm telling you, this is how it happens. Every meal, right? We wrestle in the restaurants over checks and it's a system that takes place. looks chaotic, but it's very uh, rehearsed and choreographed kind of deal. It's not easy to receive what is free. But here's the trick, friends. It's not free. It's actually really costly. It costs everything. It just didn't cost us everything. And that's what we need to get in touch with. The discomfort and the tension 
of recognizing that somebody has done for me something that I cannot do for myself and that I can never repay. And I see that person every day. And I hang out with them every day. And there it is, staring me in the face. And God says, I want you to do it for me, not out of obligation, but out of call. Out of a loving relationship. A covenant relationship. That says, we're in this for the long haul, friends. Don't ever give up. Don't ever stop. Do it out of love. Do it out of admiration. Move yourself, but don't ever stop. And he gives us that life message, Jesus, from the cross. This life message, it is finished. I have accomplished something for you already, and I give it to you as a gift, and you have to take it. And it's out of the discomfort of that grace. And I call it discomfort because that's the thing that changes us. That's the thing that moves us, friends. We have to be willing to put our arms around that incredible tension of knowing that I must live my life in the following of Jesus to begin to get after integrating this incredible tension in my soul that Jesus has done for me something that I cannot do for myself and that I can never repay but I can live I can live and I can work and I can serve and I can offer and I can search and I can share all of that do you see it? this is what's driving us friends this is what's driving us And I'll conclude with this thought, a couple thoughts. You and I are God's fingerprints. And God doesn't have fingers, right? At least not the way we think of fingers. But we are fingerprints of his. And we are all desperately unique. Age, race, gender, experiences, our hearts, our families of origin, our jobs, etc. You think about any of the things that make you unique, you are God's fingerprint. And God has placed people in your life that can only be enlivened and brought back to life with your fingerprint touch. And I want to put pressure on you. I want you to think about that in the most beautiful way. There are people in your life your mission that God has placed in your life around you and you cannot forfeit influencing their lives. Do you see it? God put you in their lives and them in your life for a very specific purpose at a very specific time for a very specific reason. I believe that. We're going to have those encounters, friends. We're going to have thousands of those encounters. How many do you need? One. I just want one. Would you make that your prayer, friends, this week? Out of the thousands of encounters that you might have, would you pray that God makes one a soul encounter? 
And would you be willing to speak on the level of the soul with another person? And to allow that vulnerability and that transformation to take place? Ephesians 2.10 speaks to what I just commented on. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. Maybe you and me, recovering chronic overhelper, can turn our helpfulness into something good, something beautiful that speaks to the soul of another person. Let's pray together.